What, what, hap what happened? Shot in, the damn head. shot in the face with a shot, yeah? Who shot him? Some goddamn scam. I was told if I was ever alone at night that they would kill me. I didn't know it. And I said, well, why didn't you tell me? And they said, because we didn't want you to leave. And I said, I wouldn't have left. <laughs> That's Barbara Koppel talking about the making of Harlan County, USA. Her breathtaking 1976 documentary about a Kentucky coal miner strike. During the strike, a man was killed and Koppel's life was threatened. Harlan County, USA won an Oscar for Best Feature Documentary. But when she made Harlan County, Koppel was unproven as a director. It was the early 70s. Koppel was a budding filmmaker living in New York City. She'd worked on other people's films, but she hadn't directed. And she was looking for a movie project. She'd heard about a coal miner strike in Kentucky. So she went there to document it. And despite bumping into a good old boy who she calls a gun thug, she stayed. The gun thug was a hefty guy in a pickup truck who was paid by the company to break up the strike. In the movie, there's a chilling scene with her and the gun thug. We'll talk with Barbara Koppel about that scene and all things Harlan County, USA in a moment. But before we get started, a reminder to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get started. I'm Todd Melby, and this is The Drunk Projectionist. Harlan County, USA. That was my first ever film that I did on my own. I worked on other people's films doing sound and editing, but this for me was the very first. And I started doing the film during the time of um, Miners for Democracy. Arnold Miller won the Miners for Democracy, and his first promise was to organize the unorganized. So. In the early 70s, in Harlan County, Kentucky, which had always been a place where you live and you die by your gun. And they also had bloody Harlan County, where people had fought for the right to have a union, and many people died. And an incredible woman named Florence Reese wrote a song called Which Side Are You On? And it pertains to almost every single struggle, whether it's a labor struggle or something else, and sometimes the verses have been changed, and she wrote that song. She also sang it in the 70s in Harlan County. I am a coal miner's wife, I'm sure I wish you well. They take your very life blood, they take our children's lives, take fathers away from children, and husbands away from us. Oh, minor, won't you organize wherever you may be and make this a land of freedom for workers like you and me. They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on? Which side are you on? That was the original. 
Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Going up to New York City, we've got to spread the news. Been fighting hard for many months, and we're not about to lose. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? I heard about Harlan County not Harlan County, but the Miners for Democracy, I always listened to a radio station called NPR. They were talking about it, and I was able to raise $12,000 as a loan from somebody, and off I went to film the Miners for Democracy. And after Arnold Miller won, then I wanted to see if he would keep his promise, and Harlan County was happening, so I went to Harlan County and was there for over 13 months. And Harlan County was fighting for the right to have a union. Women took over the picket lines. We're protesting, we're protesting Duke Power's control over these men that voted in the UMW contract, and Duke Power says, no, you can't have that contract. We were machine gunned with semi-automatic carbines, a miner was killed by a company foreman. I was told if I was ever alone at night that they would kill me. Um, so I promised the head gun thug, Basil Collins, he wouldn't catch me alone at night. And also the organizers told me way after the film that there had been a price put on my head to, to shoot me. And I didn't know it. And I said, well, why didn't you tell me? And they said, because we didn't want you to leave. And I said, I wouldn't have left. <laughs> the first time that I think you interact with the gun thug, who's this barrel-chested guy in a pickup truck. Yeah, Basil and, Collins. And his name is Basil Collins. Mm -hmm. So Basil, he, he's, he, he's driving the pickup, and there's a passenger in the pickup, and you're leaning in from the passenger side. We don't, we don't see you, but you know, we, can, we, can, we can hear you interact. Yes. And he's asking you, for your press pass. Yeah. Who are you working with, honey? What? Who do United you work with? Press. Will you show me your press card? It's in the car. And get my show press me your card. press card. Okay. What's your name, sir? My name is Basil Collins. Do you work here? Yes, ma'am. What's your position here? Line for me. How do you feel about the people picketing out here? Well, I wouldn't have no comment on that. And you, sir? Same thing. Where's this press card you was going to show me? Can I see your identification? Ma'am? May I see your identification? Yes, ma'am. If I had him, I'll swear I've lost it. All I do is just say Oh, I think I might have misplaced mine, too. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. That was that scene, and little did I realize that, you know, he was very tough and that all the people told me after, you know, oh, you're in big trouble now. The great thing about that scene is because, you know, we hear your voice and see him and then it, it sets right. up, you know, the viewer getting to know who this guy is and mm -hmm. the duplicity. Yeah, and he would hire, you know, the scabs that would cross the picket line um, who were trying to break up having a union. But I also learned later, too, that he was in... World War II, and he survived the Bataan Death March. He was a tough character who had had a lot of suffering of his own, which I didn't know about, you know, being young and foolish, and I probably still am. You know, that made me think a lot, too. 
Another scene that I really like is, you know, I love all the scenes with the women behind the scenes uh, organizing and debating what they should do and telling their own stories. They're treating us like that we're animals, dogs. Well, we aren't. We're American citizens. And they are violating their constitutional rights when they tell us that we can't have the union of our choice that those men voted in. If you looked on TV the other day, you seen women going up there, men, impeach Nixon, impeach Nixon. But you let us get up there with, uh, pick, uh, with protest signs against Duke Power, and they're sending their gun thugs to intimidate us. We're all at a meeting. Lois Scott, and she pulls a gun out of her dress, and she says something like, I started out with a switch, but now I'm carrying a gun, and she's keeping it you know, between her breasts and her bra. And she, somebody says, aren't you worried? And she said, I'm not worried. I, she said, and if, it might just shoot some of my breast off or my titty off, and I have plenty of that. Well, you'd be crazy not to carry a gun now. Yeah. <laughs> well, all right. Uh, are we going to, are y'all going to be back at six? And then you decided to cut right from there to a shooting. Yeah, to the picket line where they were bringing in the scabs. It was really early in the morning and everybody had guns, of the strike breakers had guns and they came back across the bridge and they also had semi-automatic carbines with tracer bullets that just lit up the mountainside. And the scabs were coming at the cameraman first. I went in front of him thinking, oh, I'm so strong and invincible and you hear me get knocked over. But I didn't get hurt because they kicked. I had a Nagra, and so they kicked the Nagra, which didn't, I didn't feel anything, and I had a long fish pole with a mic on it, and I just was swinging it back at them. Wow. So you used your boom pole to, yes. for protection? Yes, exactly. Wow, yeah. I mean, one wasn't, as I watched the movie, I wasn't yeah. exactly sure what was happening, just yeah, that it was, it was chaos. 415 uh, mic, I believe. Did your microphone or recorder get damaged? Uh, no. You can use it, but nobody really uses Nagras except on big fiction films, I think. And this was shot in 16 millimeter film. Another scene that involves the gun thug was the confrontation that was on the road during the daytime, and it was at a place in the road where they previously hadn't you know, attempted to stop the scabs from mm -hmm. crossing. Right. This was um, sort of in a main road, and if you follow that road, it would take you to the mine. And the women got a car that they called the booster car, which was a big station wagon, and they pushed it across the railroad tracks. So 
the strike breakers with basal columns couldn't get through to get to the mine. And that was a morning that everybody had guns. The miners had guns and the strike breakers had guns. And as Basil Collins got out of his truck, you could hear the guns clicking, you know, taking their safeties off. What was the scariest moment for you? I guess that day was the scariest moment because I went up to one of the organizers and said, Think they're going to shoot at us today? Shot at us yesterday. I bet today. I don't know. You scared? I hope not. Yeah. Ain't you? <laughs> How did you become so brave? I don't think I was brave. I think I was just young. And when you, you're young, you know, you're invincible. And also I had, you know, all these wonderful people that were putting up everything that they had for the right to have a union. And I just felt honored to be able to photograph it. But as a reporter, I've worked as a reporter for 20-some years, mm -hmm. and there are times when I know I'm supposed to move forward, and I, I kind of hesitate to move forward to interview a particular person. And it and it's may not even be particularly dangerous, but there are times where I sort of hesitate and don't move forward because... I'm not sure what's going to happen. There's some sort of something that's, you know, atypical about what I'm, right. what I know I'm supposed to do and what I'm doing at that moment. Mm -hmm. I never felt that. I guess also because I was doing sound, so I had a purpose, right? So we could shoot things, and I had a purpose, and I could ask questions, and I felt okay. Well, good, good. And so as you look at the film today, what are, what are some moments or a particular moment that you're, that you're most proud of? Like, oh my God, we captured that. I don't know. I think with Harlan County, there's so many moments that it's hard to just pick one because you just were on this wonderful journey with these people who were so brave and who were so wonderful and just opened up their hearts and their homes to us and fed us and took care of us and protected us that it just the whole thing was a wonderful moment the hardest thing was getting funding to keep going and my parents really helped a lot because I would ship the film out because I didn't want anything to happen to it to my father and then beg him to ship me more film in and we'd do it in Tennessee and then we'd drive to Tennessee to get the film. How many minutes would fit in? Oh, 10, 10 minute reel, 10, 11 minute reel of 16 millimeter film. So how many reels did you have at any given time that were 10 or 11 minutes? Oh, I don't know, but when we started getting low, you know, I'd say please and he would do it. And even when we didn't have film, we'd still go on the picket line and pretend we had film in the camera. Ah. Yes. Smart. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so because the reels only recorded 10 or 11 minutes, were, you, were there times when you hesitated to turn the camera because, oh my God, this is costing us? No, I never thought about it costing. I didn't care. I just thought about, okay, we have to have another one to put on. I just wanted to make sure that we didn't miss anything, that we didn't leave any stone unturned. And what would you tell young filmmakers or young nonfiction folks? 
I got to think the advice is once you go, don't leave. Yes, and and know that if you're passionate enough about it and that people will help you. And it's a very supportive time now for documentary. So don't be afraid. Follow your instincts and go for it and don't let anyone stop you. Then I wanted to ask you also about opening shots and closing shots and the importance of them. And maybe you could tell us how you started Harlan County. The opening shot of Harlan County is going into the coal mines. The closing shot of Harlan County is people coming out of the coal mines. And did you figure that out in the edit room? Or? Edit room. Edit room. Because in documentaries, you never really know what you're going to get. You know, you think you have a certain idea, but you have to let that leave your mind, and you just have to let whatever happens, happens, and just go with it. And then you're going to be really telling a story that's real and has a sense of truthfulness. If I remember correctly, there's a, the opening shot or one of the very close opening shots is the, the miner going into the coal mine on a, on a horizontal conveyor belt. On a conveyor belt, yeah. And you're not really supposed to do that, but they did. But, and it was very filmic. Oh my God! Yeah, it's so it's so it's cinematic. Low coal, so people were crawling. You know, you couldn't stand up in the coal mine. And when we went into the coal mine, you know, I was dragging my nagra <laughs> and crawling along with everybody. That I think that that was the most important film in my life because I learned what life and death was all about and I saw people really standing up for what they believed in and it was had a great impression on me throughout the rest of my career. Why do you think it still resonates with people? The film? Oh, I don't know. You'd have to ask people. (laughs) I don't know if it does, but... Yeah. It does with me. Well, thanks so much. Thank you very much. Barbara Koppel has gone on to make lots of films during her career, including more than a dozen documentaries. Her most recent is titled Miss Sharon Jones and documents the Brooklyn singer's battle with cancer. In 1990, Koppel released American Dream, another documentary about a labor strike. That one involved a meatpackers union in Minnesota. And like Harlan County, USA, it too won an Oscar. Next time, actor William H. Macy reveals how he views Jerry Lundegaard, his duplicitous character in the 1996 movie Fargo. I completely understood his point of view. I completely knew why he was doing what he was doing in that weird way that actors can do it. I thought... He was noble. (laughs) Oh, jeez. That's right, and we need more money. What the heck are you talking about? What do you fellas got yourself mixed up in? That's actor William H. Macy and All Things Fargo, next time on The Drunk Projectionist. If you like what you hear, please tell a friend. And find us online. We're at thedrunkprojectionist.com. Thanks a lot for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye.